0: And thanks for listening.
1: Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton, founder of Climate One. Last year, U.N. Secretary General Ban Ki-moon made a highly unusual move for a diplomat. He reached out to the advertising giants on Madison Avenue and asked for their help. He wanted them to use their communication skills to generate awareness and support for the upcoming climate negotiations in Copenhagen. The result is Copenhagen, an unusual advertising campaign that is focusing on the opportunity and possibility of a clean energy future. Copenhagen is launching now, and today we'll discuss that effort as well as public attitudes toward international climate negotiations. Do people around the world know about the climate negotiations? Do they care? Can the Copenhagen campaign make climate change a kitchen table issue? Do ad campaigns create cultural and political change? Seth Farbman is Global Managing Director of Ogilvy & Mather, the firm that created the Copenhagen concept. Adam Werbach is CEO of Saatchi & Saatchi S. And John Krosnick is Professor of Communications and Political Science at Stanford University. Please give them a warm Commonwealth Club (laughs) welcome. Uh, Before we begin our conversation, we have a special message from Rajendra Pachari, Chairman of the Nobel Peace Prize-winning Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change.
2: Good day to you. I'm very happy to be able to speak to you in this manner, using uh, electronic technology rather than being there in person. Of course, I would have preferred very much to be there in person myself, uh, simply because that would have given me an opportunity to interact with what I'm sure is a very distinguished audience. I had the pleasure of participating in Climate One in June 2008, when a remarkable leader of California, Mary Nichols, was also present, and Ray Lane from KPCB, uh, an outstanding venture capitalist who was doing great things in promoting new energy technology. Indeed, new energy technology represents an enormous hope for the whole world, And I think hope is what we need. That's why I also like the title Copenhagen because Copenhagen is a city that's going to be known I hope for generating hope. And this is where I'd like to lend my support to what's being done to create awareness because in democracies, in the ultimate analysis, while leaders certainly need to take the lead and indeed will take the lead They need the support of the public because that is the essence of democracy, that leadership and governments essentially do what is reflected as the will of the people. And in this case, we really don't have a moment to lose. It is so essential for us to get a good agreement, an effective agreement globally when all the delegations of the world meet in Copenhagen. But in order to generate the right spirit and the right momentum and the resolve that is essential for a good global agreement, I think public awareness is going to be absolutely crucial. So I commend what is being done as part of Climate One, and I'm very, very grateful for being given this opportunity because the IPCC Fourth Assessment Report has clearly brought out that if we want to stabilize the the Earth's climate, that if we want to stabilize the Earth's climate, then we really have a very short window of opportunity. As a matter of fact, if we want to stabilize temperature increase to between 2 degrees to 2.4 degrees Celsius, then we have clearly stated in the IPCC fourth assessment report that global emissions will have to peak no later than 2015. And if that were to be the case, it's essential that the governments of the world take a very clear stand that they are going to reduce their emissions substantially by 2020. And I hope Copenhagen is able to achieve that. I also hope, as the term Copenhagen would possibly convey, uh, that we also look at the problems of the worst affected regions of the world. And that adequate financial resources, access to technology are provided to those countries who otherwise really don't have the wherewithal for bringing about change in the right direction. So we certainly need a global understanding, we need a global agreement, whereby I hope Copenhagen will be remembered for the hope that it generates not only for this generation, but for several other generations to come in the future. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity.
1: Thanks to Dr. Pachari, who is chairman of the IPCC. So, Seth Farman, tell us about Copenhagen. What is it? Uh, when is it going to be rolling out? Where is, where is it going to be? Tell us about the, the campaign.
0: Sure. Um, you know, and I, let me just start by saying, when well, nearly a year ago the SG asked for our help, I always say, The man, Secretary General? Sorry, the Secretary General of the UN asked for our help. I thought, man, it's more desperate than I thought. You know, to ask a bunch of ad people to help, there's something big here, right? So then I started thinking about it, and it's uh, uh, it, it actually makes sense. There's, um, there's a whole lot of people out there, and there's a whole lot of people who might, uh, who might be familiar with terms like global warming and climate change, but they haven't personalized them. They don't know how it is important in their lives. There's also a whole lot of conversation about climate change. Is 350 the right number? Is uh, the transference of technology the critical issue? All of the details where there's a lot of conversation that's also not all that important to the average person. So what Copenhagen is is an attempt to combine those two things, to open up the tent, if you will, to engage people and invite people into this idea into this conversation, into what you can say is the debate of our time, our generation. Uh, you know, I think superlatives are fine here. It's just that critical. Open it up to people in a way that it's never been relevant or possible before. So what is Copenhagen? It's, it's a branding exercise. Climate change, global warming, green, environmental, all of these words are okay, but they fall short. There's a need to really connect what's happening in the world, what's happening in the environment, what's happening in the economy, what's happening at kitchen tables, as George Lakoff likes to say, to uh, to, to the average person. And to create, uh, to create a label, to create a brand that makes it accessible for everybody. So it's a campaign at its core. Um, it is not meant to be initially advocacy. There's plenty of places to do that. There's plenty of opportunities. But it's meant to be uh, a way that people can engage with each other. And the simple line that we use is, it's not the U.N.'s campaign. Lord knows you get the U.N. involved uh, too closely in things, and, and that can be troublesome. It's not the U.N.'s campaign. It's not the ad industry's campaign. It's the people's campaign. And when people lead, leaders follow and this is an opportunity to get people aligned around the sense that they indeed have the power and the ability to have massive changes, not only at, on their kitchen table needs of today, but on generations to happen. And when's it happening? Two-week period, December, like a global election. You've got to have a deadline. Average people aren't going to get off the couch, aren't going to get involved unless you give them an absolute thing to do, and an absolute time which to do it.
1: And is this going to happen around the world? I mean the countries that really matter in some respects, China, India, are you doing things
0: there? Yeah, I mean we like to say it's a global campaign and you know with the Internet everything's a global campaign these days. But the the key the key countries uh, that are critical to the Secretary General, critical to Copenhagen, are our key countries as well. Obviously the US, obviously China, obviously India, Brazil. Um, one of the uh, <laughs> exciting things, it, it, it's its funny how it turned out, I won't go into that story, but the exciting thing is Denmark has become critically important because the, the city of Copenhagen, when uh, it, we had to get approval to mess with their name and turn it into Copenhagen, so the city said, yeah, great. And then they came back 30 days later and they said, can we make this our official campaign as well? So Denmark's now critically important, although... I think we might have slightly different objectives there.
1: Adam Warbach, you started out uh, as a grassroots advocate, and is this really the way that change happens, this kind of top-down ad campaign? What's your take on this?
3: Well, this is an extraordinary moment. Um, You know, I think back to the Kyoto negotiations, which I was at as president of the Sierra Club, and at that time I actually thought we should blow up the negotiation. I thought that it was better to, to have no deal than to pass the deal that we had because we would actually take the, 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 the heat out of the balloon, take the, the air out of the balloon of pressure to do something about climate change. But now, a decade later, it's, it's, the world is very different. Um, and in, in that context, you know, I, I think of three things. First, we are nowhere. I mean, when we say the word Copenhagen in the environmental community, you think about the most important climate negotiations of our lifetimes. When you talk to the average American, you think about smokeless tobacco. I mean, Copenhagen is not a known uh, effort. It's not something that, that people know what's happened. They, you know, a quarter of Americans have passports, so it's, it's hardly um, a, a major thing on Americans' um, radar screen. Um, second, the, the science just gets more unbelievable every day. I mean, I just read recently that we now know pretty firmly that India's crop yields will be, will be going down by 5%. And to hear that at the same time as the eve of the death of Norman Borlaug, who did more than any other person to increase crop yields, just extraordinary. And, you know, news just came out that that hops um, are becoming more acidic, and the beer that we drink, even the beer we drink is changing. At this point, it's sort of getting ridiculous. Like, climate change is here, it's real, and something needs to happen. Um, and the third thing is really that, uh, it, you know, Copenhagen isn't the end, it's the beginning of a campaign that then needs to happen and move to the Senate in the United States. Um, and of course, the Senate is, is, the, is the most extraperous bunch towards passing a, a climate change uh, treaty. So within all of that context, the answer is yes, absolutely. We need the, the, the best minds in advertising, we need the best minds in marketing communications to engage the world in the same way that people can make us buy uh, a, something as silly as a bottle a, a, a bottled water. We need to figure out how to use that uh, to actually engage people in something much more difficult. And I think that's what Copenhagen and the Copenhagen campaign actually aims to do.
1: Let's get a baseline on this. John Krosnick, you uh, are a polling expert among other things. Uh, What are the attitudes on climate change uh, in the U.S. around the world? And and what is this campaign up against in terms of a baseline awareness uh, on, on the problem and the solutions?
4: Well, at the Woods Institute at Stanford, we have been studying American public opinion for over a decade now on this issue. And I think we know it well. We know less well what other countries think because high-quality surveys have not been done until very recently. The Gallup World Poll is the first step in that direction with about 80 countries being surveyed regularly since 2006. And I can tell you that walking into December of 2009, there are some fundamentals, let's start with the United States, that are very widely accepted. Just about every American believes that the planet's been heating up. Just about every American thinks it's caused partly by human activity, if not primarily by human activity. And large majorities of Americans think that if unchecked, this warming will be bad for people here and abroad and want government to do a lot to address it. Um, The most enthusiasm in the American public, remarkably huge majorities, support interventions that will require businesses and consumers to change the way we do our business. It's not so much um, encouraging or requesting, but requiring that businesses make cars that are more efficient, use less electricity, uh, requiring that solar energy be used more, requiring that appliances and buildings be built in ways that take less electricity um, to run and so on. So some of the fundamentals are in place already, but there are two big barriers in the United States. One is that Americans are simply not completely sure about any of what I just said. So if you simply ask those questions in surveys, you get huge majorities giving the answers I described. But if you ask people, how sure are you the planet's been heating up? How sure are you that it's human-caused? How sure are you that government should do these things? Certainty is not at as high a level as it should be, and we've done experiments recently showing that that uncertainty comes from, I think, a well-meaning practice on the part of the news media, and that is to balance coverage of this issue by giving voices both to mainstream scientists and to skeptical scientists who raise doubts about the mainstream consensus on this issue. And, uh, you know, this, this work, we hope, will call attention to the fact that balance in this case is actually bias in news coverage, to coin a term from folks at UC Santa Cruz who coined it initially. And... So we hope that the news media will continue in the path that they've been moving along to characterize the skeptical voices and the mainstream voices a bit more accurately instead of quite as balanced as they have been. But the other fundamental problem right now in Americans' thinking is that people don't see a solution, that all the solutions being discussed at the moment in terms of how exactly are we going to solve these catastrophic problems that are on the way – involve reducing future emissions. And yet the message Americans have got is we've done tremendous damage already, and no one's talking about a giant vacuum cleaner to suck out the CO2 that's already up in the atmosphere. So in some sense, it's as if the doctor said to the patient, bad news, you got cancer, it's fatal. On the other hand, the good news is we can prevent you from getting any more cancer. So the, the problem has to be reframed in some way, both so that people don't see it, as a hopeless problem, and that's in some sense I think a connection to Copenhagen. but also to recognize in simple terms, other than making it worse, how are we actually going to undo the damage that's been done already? Unless the mainstream science community wants to say, ah, sorry, we misled you. The truth is we haven't been devastatingly damaging so far. It will just get devastatingly damaging in the future if we continue our current activities. And that's a subtly different message than has been coming out in the past. You might think uh, from some characterizations of the American public that people aren't that attentive to detail, but from 40 years of research on public opinion, we now know they are. And so that's an important step that I think could be taken and that a campaign coming in the future could, in fact, make significant headway with by actually grabbing that, that problem and wrestling it to the ground.
1: One of the other things about climate change is it is perceived to be people to be far away in time and space. It's the polar bears. It's the Arctic, where most people have never been. Uh, so w- what does your research show about people who are motivated by things where they start to hit home? And then I want to tie this back to the campaign, how you're tying this to people's daily lives. Get back to the kitchen table. Because until, as Jake George Lakoff says, until it hits there, it's someone else's problem and some other country, some other generation. But, John, do you have research on, on when people really it starts to drive home and more than just a
4: wish, but people take action and maybe a little bit of sacrifice or behavioral change? Right. So one of the important questions for anyone coming into this debate as an advocate of some point of view is to say, what exactly do we want to change in the American public? And so if one goal is to convince people the planet's been heating up that's a fight not worth fighting. It's been won already. If the goal is instead to convince more people that there is a solution so that they will say it's a serious problem they're willing to invest even more energy in personally, then that's a a different goal. Um, You've raised yet another one, which is very important. That is, the extent to which Americans will actually write checks to lobbying groups, will write letters and make phone calls to their elected representatives, will walk into a voting booth and vote based on an issue. And in order to activate people in those regards... It turns out it does matter that the issue connect with them personally, but it doesn't have to connect personally in the way I think many people assume. In other words, I don't have to convince you that you're going to heat up, and as the result of the heat, you're going to suffer problems. Americans are more magnanimous than that. They can see that if other people will be hurt by it, who they care about, or if their values, their fundamental values about the way life should be lived are wrapped up in an issue, that's enough to get people passionate. So it, one way to do it is to say, listen, I'm going to take your gun away and, or I'm, I'm going to uh, you know, uh, prevent you from being able to drive the car you want to drive. That will certainly convince people that their self-interest is at stake. But you can get people putting pressure on government in ways other than that with the right messages that focus on impact on others. So we're not quite as selfish as the economists might lead us to think.
1: John Krosnick is a professor at Stanford University. Seth Farbman, how's the campaign addressing those issues?
0: Well, I think in its fundamental design. Um, I had mentioned earlier it was, uh, you know, campaign of the people, right? And so when, and we're not sharing work today, but when, uh, when you see the campaign, you'll notice that these aren't images of celebrities or scientists or world leaders. They are people who are citizens of Copenhagen. They are average people from all over the world that are recognizable to each one of us. And um, quite literally, we ask people to become a citizen. And what is a citizen? A citizen is you, know, you choose to be a citizen of a place. We know this is part of the American dream. People come here, and they're from somewhere else, but they are incredibly proud to be a citizen of. It's an ideology that you're tapping into. Um, so the campaign uh, features people, and it features what their hopes are for a better future, and it ties that those hopes very directly to things that we can all share, things like uh, turning wind into wealth, turning sunlight into jobs. And with, uh, by, by allowing people a platform, and we tend to use, and this is maybe an ad industry thing, but we tend to use the word platform rather than campaign, because a campaign sets out to drive you very specifically to a predetermined place. And while, sure, there's some of that, we really want people to be able to share their thoughts on what a good outcome is, what a better world is, and what a, a, what a Hopenhagen, what a world that is fundamentally sound and green and economically prosperous means to them. We take those, those whether they're images of hopes, whether they're videos, et cetera, and we use Hopenhagen as a platform to share those with each other, very grassroots up.
1: And how are you going to measure impact? How are you going to know what this
0: accomplishes? Yeah, I, you know, the truth is, I don't know that we will, um, and I think we have to be okay with that. We um, we could say that it's a positive outcome in Copenhagen. What's that look like? What does that feel like? We can't even agree, uh, the U.N. can't even agree on what exactly that looks like. Um, Is it the number of signatures? We're asking people to sign the UNET petition, which, uh, when you see it, if you haven't, is a very, very general petition. So, yes, we're counting. Um, What we're mostly trying to do with Copenhagen is to aggregate, to collect, to actually bring all of these expressions of support to one place. Um, Ultimately, uh, I think that we have to be okay with saying that if we Open up the tent a bit. If we bring more people into this conversation, then that's success. And let the outcomes uh, be.
1: Adam Warbach, you said earlier that you had uh, reservations about the Kyoto. Uh, some people are concerned that Copenhagen will not be a success. Certainly the process, as you mentioned, will continue. What happens next winter when Copenhagen has some inconclusive result? Things are dragging on. Then, then where are we?
3: Well, when we started talking about this campaign with the International Advertising Association, the first challenge was to change the frame. And this is something that obviously lots of people have been working on for a while, but to move away from a strictly green environmental devastation argument. The world will end, so you have to do something about it. Doom and
1: gloom. Yeah,
3: Yeah, and as John laid out, that's not the most compelling uh, argument uh, (laughs) for people. Um, so there's a larger project, which is to change the frame into a question of rewiring the economy for innovation, investing in changing the way that we develop the world to give people light who do not have light, to give people heat who do not have heat, to allow people to eat who are not eating now, and to allow climate change to be a tool to do that. That's the larger frame that's, that, that's being changed right now, and, and that, in the end, is the greatest success that this campaign can have. In terms of what Copenhagen needs to do, I mean, we need, first and foremost, an agreement, Because there must be an agreement. There must be an update to to the Kyoto Accords that can be then taken back to to national battles. So you think
1: a deal, even if it's a little bit weak or less than some people would want, a deal at any cost?
3: Yes. Um, The second is that we need a a significant commitment by 2050, an 80 percent reduction of carbon by 2050, a long-term goal that's significant. Third, we need a clean development mechanism. We need a way to transfer wealth from the rich company countries that are uh, that are polluting um, to to the carbon sinks to to the people who have the forests, um, the people who have not destroyed them yet, um, and who need the, the development dollars. So those things need to happen out of out of Copenhagen. And this campaign will hopefully achieve two things. One is that change of that frame, which I think is the, the greatest thing that actually can 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 actually get cemented by this more general campaign and much less targeted than the way that the Sierra Club or the NRDC or or uh, uh, focus, a sort of opinion leader campaign. Um, and then second, you know, uh, some more will to get something passed in, in December.
1: Do you think that the environmental community has been uh, uh, productive or effective with some of its doom and gloom? You know, how many pieces of mail do we all get with polar bears on it? Uh, how many trees were cut down for the direct mail with polar bears? Do you think that, that uh, they ought to do more along this, this kind of a frame?
3: Well, no. I mean, I, I actually think that the environmental movement has been spectacularly ineffective at raising the specter of something. And, you know, one of the reasons why I am working for Saatchi and Saatchi and not the Sierra Club now is because I'm enormously frustrated at our capacity as environmental activists to move the debate. And it doesn't mean that what the Sierra Club is doing, what NRC is doing, what Al Gore is doing, isn't incredibly important in moving opinion leaders. But the general public does not know that we have this extraordinary opportunity and challenge and that we can do something. If you're looking for a source of hope, responding to climate change is it. I mean, th- this is this this is that opportunity that we've been waiting, we're waiting for. And the environmental movement has been pretty terrible at convincing the public, um, not that it exists, actually people believe it exists, but that it's important. And this is the greatest challenge, John, in, in the research to my mind, is that you can get everyone to say that, yes, I believe that climate change matters. But when you say, does it matter to you as much as health care? Does it matter to you as much as uh, uh, um, your job security? Does it matter to you as much as um, terrorism? Does it matter to you? It, it falls way below.
1: Though I think, to be fair, Al Gore's campaign, we can do this. A lot of that at least tried to do – some recently has tried to be more of a positive frame along these lines. John, let's talk about the public's uh, overseas. Where are people, uh, public opinions in developing countries or even Europe on on recognizing this issue and the possibility of a solution?
4: Um, Before I get to that, I'll add a couple comments to what we've heard just in this last round. Um, First, you asked, um, will Copenhagen be evaluated? Um, we will evaluate it uh, because we've been doing surveys uh, throughout 2009 and we'll continue to do them into 2010. And so we'll know what happens as a result of this campaign, plus, of course, everything else that happens at the same time. And I'll tell you just three quick stories about instances in the past that might forecast for us what will happen. The first one is um, you might remember ads with Al Sharpton and Pat Robertson sitting on a couch together saying we need to come together to address. Millions of dollars were spent on that ad campaign and others in the last five years. And according to our surveys, those ad campaigns had zero impact on what the public thinks about this issue. So simply spending millions of dollars on ads isn't an assurance. They've got to be fine-tuned right. Um, Secondly, in 1997, leading up to the Kyoto Treaty signing in Japan, what we found was that there was on the surface from before – the fall debate in our country leading up to that treaty signing to after. There was no change at all in the proportions of Americans who endorsed particular points of view on the issue. But beneath that surface, what we found is polarization was born for the first time along party lines. The Democrats moved in the direction of the Clinton administration's aggressive stance, and Republicans stayed put. And so as a result, the two parties that had agreed before the debate polarized. So that is one potential outcome of Copenhagen. That is, people stick with the positions that they started with and move, in fact, even more so in those directions. If we have more party divide, that probably will not bode well for future legislation. The third story I'll tell you about um, just very quickly is, of course, the one we're living right now, which is healthcare. And the issue uh, facing the country right now on health care is that the, uh, as much as there has been support Majority support for many of the president 's initiatives, that majority support has been sliding backsliding dropping um, as the negative voices have become louder and louder and so any campaign like Copenhagen has the potential to activate the naysayers, and if that happens, that may actually move in the opposite direction so it'll be interesting to see what the what the data show and whether thinking ahead to anticipate these potential directions could allow the campaign to be fine-tuned to prevent them if one wanted to do so. And there's,
1: um, there's one uh, some recent results, uh, suggestions from Rasmussen and other polls, that the number of people in the U.S. who think climate change is overblown, is rising, that the media hype climate change is rising. And there's some backsliding, I think, here in the U.S. on climate change, just like you mentioned on, on health
4: uh, actually, there, you're absolutely right in those two uh, data points that you mentioned. But on the fundamentals of climate change, the stuff that we talked, I talked about a moment ago, there has been no notable backsliding okay. at all. And, uh, you know, what's interesting to touch on Adam's comments, that, that there are two ways in which people can talk about the importance of the problem. One is how much they personally care about it, how important it is to them personally. And it turns out the group of Americans who are truly passionate about this issue is just as big as the passionate groups on just about any, issue you want to name, whether it's healthcare care or anything else. But when you ask Americans how important a problem it is for this country today, it falls way behind other issues. And so if you think for a moment about that question wording, how important, or let me rephrase it, what's the most important problem facing this country today? Well, the emphasis on this country and on today is perhaps a bias away from climate change. And in fact, we've done a new experiment simply changing the question. What's the most important problem that will face the world in the future if nothing is done to stop it? And it turns out that climate change rises substantially in answers to that question. And more importantly, of course, the the obvious problem with these questions is they ask for only the single most important problem, as if people can't acknowledge more than one problem being important. And, in fact, they can. And when we loosen things up even further, climate change is, is plenty up there. So I think that's good news. Let's pause for a
1: moment uh, to remind the audience that there are question cards on your seats, and so if you'd like to write questions for today's panel, please uh, write them, and they'll be collected in the, in the aisles. Uh, Seth, have you anticipated that a backlash against this, that this might activate the, the deniers and skeptics?
0: Yeah, we, we, uh, we got good advice along those uh, lines, for sure. Um, and the, so what's the answer? So the answer is, of course, you check your facts you make sure that your supporters are activated. And that's not our job, that's your job. So if this is something that um, resonates with you, we have to ask you not only to join the site, sign the petition, raise a hand, but to share it with others as well. Um, if you are uh, represent a corporation, uh, corporations are just sometimes fairly loose organizations of regular people. That's a great channel, right, to get this word out. There are ways to, to do that. If you're a media company, you know what you can do to help. So it's, uh, it's, it's always a battle. And the truth is, the and I'm not going to get overly political here, but the truth is the other side is very well organized and very well funded. Um, will there be a backlash well, maybe, and if there is, what we like to remind our clients all the time is you're probably doing something right. And the good thing about communications is you've got the tools and you've got the channels then to take advantage, it's the jiu-jitsu move, take advantage of uh, the new awareness that you've created and then try to move it in your direction.
1: You, you mentioned uh, clients, and some of the... Uh, Clients might uh, your clients include British Petroleum and others. So, have you communicated with your clients on this? Are they supporting the campaign, and are any of them uh, secretly working against it?
0: Uh, (laughs) I'm going to ignore the last question. Um, (laughs) Yeah, we we have wonderful clients that have a a real active voice, and some of those wonderful clients are involved in uh, with contributions to the campaign and. Those contributions can be, uh, again, their employee base, and it can be getting the messages out through their channels, et cetera. And, um, uh, you know, we're we're lucky at Ogilvy. We've got a number of clients like Siemens and Coca-Cola and IBM, and we're you know, part of the global compact, DuPont, et cetera, SAP. They're part of the global compact. They're already clear on where they stand on this. They're looking for opportunities to activate uh um, whether it's their, um, you know, new innovations in this area. Many of them have the solutions that everybody keeps asking for. So we're, we're quite fortunate that, um, you know, we've got a lot of clients on the side of good here. And and they're terrific partners. I mean, just really quickly, my fundamental point of view on all of this is, uh, you know, corporations are an absolute essential key to success. And why do we do this? And why do they do it? Um you know, it's hard not to think about Anne Rand in answering this question. It's in all of our self-interest. And what the hell's wrong with that? It's in all of our self-interest, ours as people, as countries, as corporations. That's the alignment that is going to ensure that our side wins.
1: John, there's a question here uh, from the audience about about doom and gloom, uh, saying that uh, that fear actually motivated people. Uh, t- the U.S. to to go into Iraq, and actually fear is a better motivator to cause people to take
4: action than hope. How do you respond to that? Uh, As a political scientist, I'm not sure if fear motivated us to go into Iraq, but um, I think... um, (laughs) Fear fear was used to sell it, perhaps. There there actually is terrific research for decades on the impact of fear, and fear actually is more paralyzing than it is motivating. That in a, a simple biological sense... That animals have a sort of fight or flight instinct um, under circumstances of fear, but in the political world, when we induce fear on some issue uh, for someone sitting in his or her living room, the most likely reaction is actually paralysis and tuning out. So it's it's actually not a strategy that science suggests would be wise in this case. Okay.
1: Um, question for Seth from the audience about to drill down more on the specifics of what kind of media, what, what countries, et cetera, exactly how you're going to uh, to, to implement the campaign.
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so the campaign um, it essentially launches here in uh, in, in early mid September, um, and obviously Climate Week is coming up next week, along with the UN General Assembly. Uh, advertising week, as if you cared. But uh, all of these things are happening. So the, the website's being launched now, and the website is really um, going to be one of the key components. The idea of the offline media, uh, the traditional media, is to raise awareness, to use the um, uniqueness in the word hope in Hagen, uh the simplicity in saying that um, this is a people's campaign moment of time, please act. To drive people to the site, the media is uh, is mostly uh, television, out of home, and print, um, and plus a, an enormous amount of, uh, of course, activity through social uh, networks. Uh, Google is a partner. Um, you can imagine the. Uh, we've all learned from uh, from the Obama success that uh, that is your, your your best engine to very quickly, um, you know create sort of activity and, and measurable results and it's uh, it will run through uh, through uh, December obviously through the 18th and there's a uh, there's a significant effort now I mentioned earlier actually in um, in Copenhagen. I have to always pause because I'm conditioned now to call it Copenhagen yeah, I've, well, maybe I've ruined yeah. their city forever but it's actually our secret desire to do that uh, and for it always to be known as Copenhagen. As Kyoto is known as Kyoto. Uh, so when when you, <laughs> thanks for playing along. So uh, this idea of lead the leaders. Look, the last couple of weeks are the critical weeks. Um, yes, coalitions are formed now. Yes, delegates are being decided now. But this is going to be a, a conversation, a fight, however you want to talk about it, right down to the end. So when the delegates off the plane, get off the plane big part of the campaign is to, to remind them throughout home and through some of the digital components that will be in the, the city square there that the world is, uh, is watching and that the world is interested and that you cannot go home not giving it at least your best effort.
1: A couple of questions here about who's funding the campaign uh, and why didn't the campaign support specific legislation such as the Waxman-Markey bill.
0: Um, I'll, I'll answer the second part first. There are already there are already campaigns who do the the, the direct advocacy, and, and um, that A wasn't the brief from the UN, and um, uh, B would not achieve uh, you know the result of, of of opening up climate change to a larger group of people, branding it in the positive, branding it uh, you know in a in a in a more inclusive way. Um, who's funding the campaign? Um, that, just me personally, no. Uh, but uh, all of the all of the agencies uh, that have been involved have donated enormous amounts of time to create it. Uh, media companies are donating enormous amounts of media to support it. There are companies that are building the web presence, like uh, um, Take Part, part of Participant Media. And everywhere along the way, we're asking people uh, to essentially vote with their time and their effort and, and their wallets. So there's, there's sadly, there's, there's no large pool of money that is immediately activated um, for this campaign. We're doing it from the ground up. And, um, you know, while I, I would be lying if I didn't say that's the hard way to do it, and sometimes I wish there wasn't, uh, there wasn't that pool of money, in the end, I think that's where you get, um, you know, the real satisfaction. It's the, the will of the people in a sense.
1: Seth Farbman is Global Managing Director of Ogilvy and Mather. We're discussing the Copenhagen Campaign at Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. Our other guests are John Krosnick, Professor of Communication and Political Science at Stanford University, and Adam Werbach, CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi S. I'm Greg Dalton. Other questions from the audience. How can you ensure you will not simply be preaching to the choir? And since opposition to governmental action to combat global warming resides mainly in certain geographic areas, uh, the Midwest and the South in the U.S.? Have you considered targeting uh, the campaign where the opposition is the strongest?
0: Yes. Um, what's the first part of the question? About
1: how can you be sure that you're not preaching to the choir, that you're bringing new people in uh, rather than just speaking to the same people who are already on board?
0: Right, yeah. Um, right, so so the, the, the very nature of the campaign, both in the media that's being used and in the messages, uh, will attract uh, people... Um, you know who are who are new to this conversation. Uh, the 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 idea of uh, targeting is it's completely right, and that's the way. Um, in you know, if we were doing this for a client, for instance, that's exactly how we would prioritize, and we'd buy certain media and we'd segment messages, et cetera. We don't have that ability. When you've donated media, you say thank you and you move on, and you put the best creative you can into each one of those uh, mediums, and you hope that uh, as people engage, and again, this is all about getting people engaged and share, that they, in fact, refine the messages themselves. So if you happen to be in Kansas, the conversations, or in Minnesota, the conversations may go in a path towards energy and wind energy. Perfectly, perfectly fine. If you happen to be in Europe, um, your conversations may be much different. Our idea is to begin the conversation, to raise the awareness, and then allow people then to uh, to take it from there.
1: Correlated question for uh, John Krosnick. Uh, at the extremes of public opinion about climate, attitudes are relatively fixed. But in the middle, what are the attitudes of behavior that can realistically be changed? And then let's get back to. I also want to get to the international point about what people think overseas.
4: It's. Uh, uh, that's a nice way to think about it that it links up with the issue of preaching to the choir. There's actually nothing wrong with preaching to the choir. In fact, it might be desirable if the purpose is to activate people who are already sympathetic to take action and pressure those delegates somehow. Um, so that's, that's one avenue. It's, if the idea, though, is that once they get to Copenhagen, they need to feel that pressure, it's probably not... It's a little too late for that. It's got to happen sooner. So one could imagine outcomes like hoping that during the time when they are there, news media around the world release polls showing huge surges in the proportions of citizens of many countries who want legislation passed, who support the spirit of it, who support in particular the more contentious points of a potential agreement. And so that, it takes a long time to do. It takes a lot of work to push large numbers of people in a new direction, to, to produce numbers like you might hope for in that situation. That would not be preaching to the choir. That would be going to your second question, which is sort of the people who don't yet have strong and well-crystallized opinions on the issue. And for those people, uh, what our work is showing is, A, a campaign needs to overcome the uncertainty by somehow discrediting the critics who still have a loud voice. Secondly, to reassure people about the issues that we talked about before, um, that is, that there is a solution. This can be accomplished. Um, And, uh, again, that's, you know, that's... If you'll forgive me for saying so, that, that requires expert input to the conversation, not just stimulating people to talk across their kitchen tables.
1: And how about internationally? You have some, uh, something from the Gallup poll that gives us some sense of where other people in other countries are uh, on, on their attitudes toward this.
4: Yes, there are uh, wonderful data that show the following things. First of all, people who live in really hot countries – already know the seriousness of this and recognize that the impact is occurring already and that they're deeply at risk. Um, So Africa is a, a place and Brazil is another place where citizens are very alerted to the fact that life has been getting hotter, and it's, if it continues, it's going to cause more problems. You can think of them as canaries in the mine. For those of us who live in Minnesota, you might think a little more warmth, no problem there. I could have that. But once we get to um, – and, and those folks may think that they will never be living life the way people in Rwanda do, uh, temperature-wise. But th- – Certainly there is that kind of concern. Uh, Switzerland turns out to be a country that is already deeply committed to this issue, a population as a whole. But there is tremendous variability, and the United States is actually kind of in the middle of the pack. There are some countries that are perfectly happy with the way environmental protection is going. They don't see themselves at great risk. And honestly, their delegates are not going to feel a lot of pressure to sign any agreement, whereas there are other countries that uh, are experiencing negative outcomes already and will be very supportive. I could show you these slides that are here on my computer, and you would look at them for a while because there are a lot of countries, and you would eventually do what I do, I think, which is I shake my my head and I say, you know what, I can't can't figure out what causes some countries to be supportive of legislation, others to be more hesitant, some to to see that efforts have been succeeding already and others to be more skeptical. So I think the best conclusion we can reach so far is that there's lots of differences across countries, and we can certainly imagine that these differences will influence what the delegates do when they get to Copenhagen.
1: Thanks. Uh, Adam Warbach, a couple of questions about, uh, there's one question about green fatigue. You know, what is, you know, when everything's green, what does, what does green really mean? Uh, and one here about, uh, the Obama campaign, perhaps this is for Seth also, uh, leveraged people's, uh, hope, uh, quite a bit. So is there a risk of, of hope fatigue for the same reason?
3: (laughs) I, I hope not. Yeah. Yeah, hope not. Certainly hope not. Um, I think uh, uh, hope is a renewable resource. Uh, so it, it's something that will constantly be uh, uh, coming back. Um, I think, I mean, green fatigue, you know, most of us who work in the area of sustainability and state-of-communications rarely do green campaigns because they're not a strong um, uh, uh, path to buying for most uh, uh, people. Um, one of the campaigns I'm really proud of is the, uh, the by Saatchi LA is the the Prius campaign. That we're launching in Yerba Buena Gardens these gorgeous solar flowers today that are that you can uh, they're solar powered and get Wi-Fi and it's an art exhibition and it's a it's a gorgeous innovative um, uh, representation of what the new clean economy looks like. Um, So I I say that because I think what's shifting, and certainly in the sophistication of communications around this, is instead of just sort of stamp something on it and screen and therefore people will buy it, um, only, I mean, really hacks believe that that works. Um, If you actually instead say, well, how does this make this a better product, how does a green aspect make it something that, that makes it uh, work better for somebody, uh, higher quality, um, save money, do the things that basically people want? Um, if, if you talk like that, then it makes sense. If you don't, um, it just blows off. So uh, the, the, the green fatigue, you know, this is part of the, the, the frame that we're trying to, to change collectively here. Um, and I think that, that, frankly, there's a lot of, I would say, advertising industry agreement now. Um, that um, you know, I, to my mind, greenwashing is kind of dead at this point because you know, hey, you'll find me on Twitter today or on Facebook today, and you'll tell me if I, if I say something wrong right now. And companies know that, so they know that if they ask their their agency to misrepresent them or the, their agency suggests that they do, that it, it'll backfire.
1: Well, let me press on that a little bit. You mentioned the Prius, and and Toyota is a client of, of Sachi. Uh, the, the Prius has clearly given them a a halo uh, for the company. At the same time, they've been selling. Uh, uh, testosterone steroid uh, trucks, the Tundra, perhaps more of them at the same time. So is that greenwashing or not?
3: No. I mean, I don't see how advertising a Prius would uh, do that. I mean, I would look at Toyota as one of, you know, the, the world's most sustainable companies. And that doesn't mean everything is perfect. But, you know, so Toyota has a vision that it'll, it'll build cars that never crash and clean the air as they drive, which is a really brilliant way of of, of guiding the company towards a North Star goal that the Prius is one of the first articulations for, of. And, you know, I, I don't think anyone believes that Toyota in a decade, in two decades, will be much further along and, frankly, leading the rest of the industry. I mean, I think all of us wish that the American car industry had followed the same path. Instead of doubling down again on, on on SUVs,
1: have you either of you had a situation where you've turned down business from a client because it wasn't uh, you thought it would be greenwashing or, or you didn't like what they were doing?
3: Oh, sure, yeah, all the time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and that was which company? <laughs> <laughs> How about, a, how about your current com- current clients where you try to push them? They might be on board, but you try to push them a little more. Because there's one theory that actually, and Adam, you touched on this earlier, that it's really corporations that are the real strong agents of change. And there's sort of the popular approach. But corporations, let's face it, have a lot of power. So if you can get corporate leadership to change, then you're really having an impact. And those you have the, peop- the ear of those people.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and you know, corporations generally want to do two things in my experience. They want to sell more stuff or save money doing it. I mean, they, they just, they, those are the two sides. And what sustainability offers is an option on both ends. Right there's a new market, a new addressable market of people who want products that are better for the world and better for themselves, which is great. Those are the pre buyers, and there's a way to save a lot of money by engaging your employees more, by cutting money out of the supply chain, by um, by uh, reducing transportation costs. So both things make sense for people. Um, you know, I, to my mind, it's it's very difficult. There are some clients like that I, I would never take because I don't. I mean, I I don't know how you would make a coal company. Um, more sustainable. It's a very difficult challenge. Um, someone might be smarter than me and figure that out, but I, I, I don't. I, I don't know how you do that. Well, how about
1: uh, Procter and Gamble, which is they they make Charmin, uh, and which takes trees from the boreal forest, which is a big uh, carbon sink. Now, recently, Greenpeace had a successful campaign where they got a competitor, uh, Kimberly Clark, to agree not to clear cut for, uh, for uh, Kleenex. And uh, it's, we don't know yet whether Procter & Gamble is going to match that, but that was an effective campaign where a corporation was pressured. They said, all right, no more clear-cutting for Kleenex. Have you had any conversations with P&G, or maybe that's not your brief, to say this would be a good thing to match the competitor and not clear-cut for tissue?
3: Well, in full disclosure, I do work for Procter & Gamble, and I've, for, I've, I have served on the International Board of Greenpeace. Um, so... Uh... I'm um, split personality, You're perfectly positioned um, to uh No, my experience is that P&G is... I mean, P&G has 4 billion customers across the planet. And one of the reasons that I joined Saatchi was the excitement of working with someone who had that type of reach. And if we really want to get beyond the small, narrow conversation of climate change, we need to find, somehow reach people in every Walmart store and every store across the planet. And companies like P&G have the opportunity to do that. Um, I, frankly, focus on, on pushing the, uh, uh, the, the, the new products that are coming. I'm really excited about, for example, cold water laundry and... It's amazing how excited I am by cold, la- cold water laundry. But it's very simple, right? You can wash your, wa- your, your clothes now because of new enzymes in Tide that don't require hot water. And that simple innovation, right, saves enormous amounts of energy and goes a long way to actually meeting our Kyoto commitment, just if every American changed to cold water laundry detergent. And, you know, it makes me a very strange evangelist, um, but I believe in cold water laundry detergent. <laughs> everybody got that okay no more no more
1: no more hot water uh a similar one for seth unilever is, is a is a client huge buyer of of palm oil which is a major source of deforestation in indonesia uh and, and elsewhere uh and yet greenpeace again uh Pressured Unilever, uh, t- and they agreed to a moratorium on deforestation for palm oil, and, uh, and agreed to uh, encourage their peers to also abide up to that. So maybe you could comment on that example or others where companies are pressured, and are you part of that process? Or
0: yeah, I mean, this is this is really the you know the, the virtuous circle, and and and. and and this is where we need everyone involved in this conversation, right? And and you uh, you need the the Greenpeace, you need the NGOs to uh, constantly remain as watchdogs. What's changed dramatically is uh, the way these companies are now, or these organizations are working together. And um, one of the things that we talk to Unilever and all of our clients about is is fostering relationships and fostering uh, the collaboration. Now, so that uh, it becomes a shared problem and a shared solution, uh, Unilever is incredibly committed to looking at sustainability across its entire product line. Does that mean that they do everything perfectly now? Of course not. What what our job is is to to keep everything in balance, to find the change agents within the corporation that that won't get scared at imperfection, but will actually take it on and will recognize that that's an enormous opportunity for the company. At the same time, we we encourage both their consumers and NGOs and everyone who's involved in a conversation with a brand to also fairly reward companies when they do the right thing. Because look, there's the carrot and there's the stick. And we had a lot of stick for a lot of years and a little carrot now and again uh, goes a really, really long way in making this um, uh, break through that cycle. And that's what's exciting about where we are now, and that's why I'm incredibly hopeful. We see from all of our clients that they're looking at sustainability and climate change now as an enormous opportunity. Yes, it saves money. Yes, my energy bill goes down, et cetera, but it also provides a path towards innovation that creates competitive advantage, and we encourage that from the inside out. You mentioned something when we were talking on the phone about a, a, a bottle uh, that
1: Coca-Cola's making out of plants. I don't know how w- yeah. widely that nomad is, but that sounded pretty interesting, non-food uh, biological substance that replaces petroleum.
0: Right. I mean, this is, this is an exciting solution, and it does it solve all of Coca-Cola's problems. They'll be the first to tell you no, of course not. But uh, there's a, a product we worked with them on uh, called Plant Bottle. And um, it, it essentially, it takes non-food product. It's a strange tar-like substance that comes from the process of molasses. So it's sugar, molasses, and there's something in between, and then something else. And it uses this material to create um, what's called bio-PET. So what's important about bio-PET, there's plenty of stuff out there, plastics are Our other client, DuPont, does. But here's one that will work today because it doesn't disrupt the recycling stream. Uh, PET is easily recycled. People don't do it enough. It's not recycled into the best stuff. There's still a lot of work to be done there. But here is a technology that is a step. It's a step in the right direction. And then our collective jobs are to make sure that the Coca-Colas of the world say, great, one step. Where's the second? Where's the third? Where's the fourth? Where's the fifth? Until we can eliminate the problem entirely.
3: And let me just add, I, 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 uh, full stop to that. But the sticks that I, I see right now, one are, is you know changing consumer demand. So people coming in and telling. Um, that the retailer wants something different. Two is retailer demand. So retailers like Walmart and others are saying we want something different. Um, three, and this is probably the best one, is small companies that are growing rapidly and you know, threatening to eat the lunch of these large multinational companies. So, for example, a San Francisco-based company, Method, has been enormously pushing um, the, the big guys to change. Um, and it shows what a small company can do um, by uh, pressing out a different type of, of, of product. So... All those sticks working together actually um, are are enabling, actually, the work to market better solutions, but we need them. I mean, we we wouldn't have a role to market good things unless those sticks were pushing other things to happen.
1: We're discussing climate change at the Commonwealth Club. Adam Warbach is CEO of Sachi and Saatchi S. Also with us is Seth Fardman, Global Managing Director of Ogilvy and & Mather, and John Krosnick, Professor of Communication and Political Science at Stanford. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, John Krosnick, a couple of questions. You mentioned earlier about the re- differences between Republicans and Democrats. Can you drill down a little bit in terms of what their perceptions are on climate change and how that relates to concern relates to knowledge?
4: Yes. Over the last 10 years, it's been actually quite remarkable that Democrats and Republicans started out in our measurements, 1996 and 1997, pretty much agreeing in the same proportions, endorsing the fundamentals of climate change, the existence of the planet heating up, human cause for it, the need for action, and so on. And uh, very quickly, within a period of three months, when the Clinton administration came out supporting the Kyoto Treaty, the, as I mentioned earlier, Democrats moved in that direction of the Clinton administration's position while Republicans held steady. Over the following 10 years, Republicans have pretty much continued to hold steady. Again, large majorities of them still endorsing these fundamental views, but those majorities have not grown at all. And interestingly, during that time period, Republicans report having learned a great deal more about the issue, and we know that they have learned a great deal more about the issue, but the experts who they trust, most importantly for quite a period of time, President George W. Bush, talking about this issue, said, yeah, but we're not sure yet exactly what the resolution of these potential problems should be. And so that hesitation from trusted leaders on the Republican side, I think, led the Republican citizens to hold pretty steady. On the other hand, Democratic voices, consistently louder and louder, saying what the Clinton administration had said in '98, pulled Democratic citizens and, interestingly, independents, as they learned more and more over the years, toward that Democratic position. And so those majorities are up in the 90s at this point. And so it's interesting to note that it's true not just of Democrats, but it's true of independents as well. So uh, the reason this is interesting and controversial to some degree is because many of my friends in the natural science community say, oh, it's so frustrating that Americans don't understand this issue. They don't have the facts. If only we were on the nightly news every night to tell them the true scientific facts, of what's happening to the planet, people would become more informed, and as a result, they would be demanding government action. Well, the fact is, more information doesn't in itself lead to more concern or more activation. It depends on what that information is, who it comes from, and the extent to which the recipient trusts that source. And so in some sense, there was wisdom... To have Al Sharpton and Pat Robertson sit on a couch together and say that they agreed, although I'm not sure those were the two best representatives of those points of view, Um, perhaps with some other figures who are more widely trusted on both sides, one could imagine more success. But the truth of the matter is they don't have to sit on a couch together. In fact, it may be better not to sit on a couch together and rather to have voices from all sides of the political spectrum helping Americans to recognize what the natural science community is actually saying if one's goal is to enhance the relationship between knowledge and action.
1: A couple of questions about healthcare uh, and how it relates as, as a priority. How did the healthcare debate end up on our kitchen tables before Copenhagen? Was the, uh, and so I'd like to throw that to the panel in terms of uh, priorities and how, maybe that's for John also in terms of how it rates as a priority and how can, the, can you get through, really, I guess, Seth, when there's some people are probably. Healthcare is more immediate and to real to people than, than climate that's far away. How do you get through? But well, let's first hear John.
4: Yeah, if healthcare is not out of the spotlight by December, climate change is in big trouble because the news media do tend to focus on one primary issue at a time. Now, December is a long time from now, and the news media also don't sustain their attention to any single issue for terribly long. On the other hand, if there continues to be new news on that issue every day, it has grabbed the attention of Americans. That's not a good thing for this campaign. I certainly don't know the stories behind the scenes of how this administration chose to focus on health care first, but certainly judging from what happened to the Clinton administration in their effort on health care, one would have imagined that this would blow up exactly the way it has into controversy, and one would have imagined that that there could indeed be tremendous enthusiasm from opponents to try to bring down the president's credibility during the course of this campaign, which, as you know, has been happening. uh, His approval ratings have been consistently dropped. In recent months. Now, of course, that's completely predictable. It has happened to every president after they were elected that their approval ratings drop. But the fact of the matter is, with his approval ratings lower now than they were then, that means he will be less effective in Washington. And if there is still a lot of passion focused on health care, it's going to be tougher to get public attention to and support for difficult legislation on this issue in December.
1: Seth Farbman, after the health care battle, this is from the audience, after the health care battle this summer, what lessons can we apply to selling the U.S. a meaningful climate change legislation, either domestic or
0: international? That's a question for somebody uh, better suited to answer it than, than certainly I am. Um, you know, I, I think the, the, the positive lessons are, uh, look, health care is an issue that affects every single person. Uh, health care is, at its core, a cultural or, some might say, a moral issue. We're the only country, the only first-world country, that has decided not to provide universal health care to its citizens. Uh, I believe that climate change is, frankly, the same, and that there is uh, the potential to to bridge uh, traditional right and left points of view by reminding people of such. In an overly simplistic way, we're talking about providing a better future. We're talking about providing greater opportunity. And when you use words like hope, which doesn't belong to Obama, it belongs to people. Gandhi used it, Napoleon Bonaparte. Famous quote, a leader is a dealer in hope. Fundamentally belongs to people. So um, if we activate that and we use it to bridge, uh, the divides, maybe, uh, maybe we can actually solve both issues. I'm um, well, incredibly optimistic. And that's the, I mean, you know, you say carbon
3: cap, it sounds like something you put on your car. It's not like, it, it's, it's not something that makes sense in the American political debate. And really what we're talking about is rebuilding the American economy. And that will have four things, only one of which is the carbon cap. That's the, that's the regulatory rules. It'll also have an energy efficiency standard. It'll also have a renewable electricity standard. It'll also have a major investment in rewiring our economy. That, that's what this is. And the carbon cap is the thing we talk about because it's the most controversial, but it has to be downgraded. I mean, it's one thing we've learned about. Uh, in the healthcare debate, we talked about the public option way too high instead of talking about it as part of uh, uh, the larger package.
1: Yeah, there's a tendency to talk about the actual tools rather than what the tools uh, are go- going to create. Uh, question from the audience. Bill McKibben's 350 is driving attention to October 24th, 2009, International Day of Climate Action. How do the people differentiate between which global event to direct their attention and efforts? And how much is too many, you know, how much is too many global events? So Adam, you're working on Earth Day next year, so... Four is too many.
3: I don't know. <laughs> there's, I, you know, I, I, truthfully, you do to throw everything at it. So um, yeah, I, I, 350.org and Bill McKibben's effort, extraordinary. Hopingtoheaven.org. I really encourage you to go to, you know, Earth Day. Uh, uh, next year is the 40th anniversary of Earth Day, which will be right around the time of the Senate battle. Um, so there's a lot of things happening, and we frankly need those sorts of milestones. And from a commercial standpoint, you, you think of the, the way that media works and companies work. They need timelines to release things. They need they need those moments. So it's actually really important to set up those milestones to to push.
1: Uh, one question here uh, talks about, uh, Two people from the advertising industry, which is in the business of getting people to, uh, to buy more, buy more stuff. And there's some people who think we can't really buy our way out of this situation and question sort of the premise of sustainable purchasing and whether we need more deeper structural f- reform or whether buying greener products is really gonna, uh, solve the problem, particularly when there's hundreds of millions of people, uh, coming into the middle class who want to live like we do. And if they have our carbon footprints, uh, we're in trouble.
0: Yeah, it's, uh, if, if you listen to um, uh, Martin Sorrell, who's the, uh, the CEO of WPP, which owns Ogilvy & Mather, he talks about this quite openly. And we're a consumption-based uh, business, right? And consumption, as we know it, disposable consumption, needs to be reduced. Uh, you know, we've become so accustomed to using once, throwing away. Convenience. What do we look for when we buy products? We look for value. We look for quality. We look for convenience. So that third pillar of convenience is really where we have the opportunity. Is that the best solution? Are there other products that, um, that replace hundreds of others? And is there a way that we can get people to still keep uh, the same level of um, standard of living? Because look, China, India, Everyone, these merging middle classes, every single person on this planet deserves a better standard of the living. And it's absolutely a fundamental right that people should have better products, cleaner water, cleaner air, all of these things. Um, sometimes that means using less, but if you use better stuff, fewer stuff, that is sustainability.
1: Adam?
3: Extraordinary. I, it, this is this is the moment of change. Right. And to hear I mean, I'm really I'm very excited as a, uh, to hear um, the, the global managing director of Ogilvy, Ogilvy talk like that. I mean, it's a very exciting um, and different um, language than the advertising industry was talking about a decade ago. Um, it's um, it's a step um, now to turn that into actual behavior. Long way to go. Um, and I, I don't know if, Seth, you feel this way. I feel like, you know, I'm constantly trying to learn more and push harder and do. Um, but there's a, huge, there's a huge opportunity that we face, um, and what's exciting to me is to watch the advertising industry at least begin to grapple with that opportunity. Uh, Whether we will reach it, I think we'll know a lot more in December, uh, and then, frankly, we'll know a lot more in the next uh, year as the Senate in the United States uh, will vote on ratification of the hopefully the Copenhagen agreement.
1: John Krosnick, you get the last word.
3: Uh, well,
4: <clears throat> okay, on, the, on an interesting issue. Um, I'll, you, your premise of your question was the idea that advertising um, is suited to get people to buy more. And the question is, is that right? I actually asked what felt like an innocent question a few years ago. What evidence is there that advertising actually affects anything? And when <laughs> hunting in the literature... That's
0: the of our program tonight. Yeah.
4: When looking in the literature, the academic literature, and talking to colleagues in the profession and uh, found some very interesting answers. First of all, it's very hard to find any published science showing that advertising causes people to buy products they wouldn't have bought Otherwise, and when I talk to my colleagues, they said in the in the industry, they say, "Oh yeah, well, is not really designed for that." First of all, it's to designed to change brand loyalties, often, so people are going to buy a soda. The question is, are they going to buy Coke or Pepsi? A second one that's really surprised me is it's actually designed to get us to pay more for the products we would have bought anyway, and that's interesting. Um, if if in fact those are the two foci of advertising, then is the industry suited to a different goal, which is maybe to get people to send letters to elected representatives or to change their opinions as expressed in a poll. And so to me, this is a really intriguing direction for future dialogue between people like me and my colleagues sitting to my right. They may and undoubtedly have thought a lot about these issues, but we may have a new perspective to bring to the conversation as well that might be helpful. So on that note... We're out of time, but if if you
1: want
0: to come back at this and have some fun at the end, I don't (laughs) – I I would just simply respond by saying I believe completely in the power of communications. And it's gotten more sophisticated. Uh, The way to engage people has gotten more powerful. And the ad industry, and I personally uh, believe that you can turn that power towards anything and turn it towards something as massive as climate change is absolutely appropriate. And uh, for me, quite exciting and quite encouraging. And I
3: think it's all breaking down, that no one is in control, and no (laughs) one knows what's going to happen in the next few years, and it's just all falling apart.
1: (laughs) All right. And on that note, we will... uh... We will let chaos reign. Uh, we've been speaking with Adam Werbach, CEO of Saatchi and Saatchi S, John Krosnick, Professor of Communication and Political Science at Stanford University, and Seth Farbman, Global Managing Director of Ogilvy & Mather. I'm Greg Dalton, and now this meeting of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. Thank you. <laughs>